Good morning, everybody. Hey, happy Mother's Day, moms. We're so glad to have you this morning. Happy Mother's Day, grandmas and everybody else. It's great to be gathered together this morning. And if this is one of your very first times in church, your mama dragged you here today. We are so glad you're here. Special welcome to you. My mama used to drag me to church, too. And we're really, really glad that you're here. Well, uh, this is a little unusual, but if you've been watching the news this week, you know that a draft opinion by Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito was leaked to the press this week, indicating that the Supreme Court may be poised to overturn the Roe decision that legalized abortion throughout the United States in 1973. This does not, de are you all aware of that? Okay, you don't live under rocks. Good. This doesn't represent an official decision. It's only an indication of which way the majority of the court is leaning right now. But the leak of the document is very unusual. And a lot can happen in the space of a month or so. And so um, we want to pray together as a congregation. So three things have been on my mind this week. Uh, when I first heard about it, the first was for the, just the safety and the integrity of, of our justices and the judicial process. The second has been for the decision itself. And the third, and what I really wanted to share with you this morning, is, is um, just a reminder that whatever happens in the courts over the next two months, the root of the issue remains. The spiritual root of the issue that gave us Roe in the first place is still there. And it will find its way out in one way or another. And what we're really longing for as God's people is not just a court decision, but we are waiting for spiritual renewal in our nation, for the nation to see what we've done and to be grieved by it and move to repentance. And that is a part, it's not the reason that the church exists, but it's a part of the reason that we exist as God's people. So let's pray. All right. Our Father in heaven, it's Sunday morning again, and we are gathered together again as your people in your name. We thank you for calling us together. We love you. We love each other. We are ready to hear from you. As we consider the news from this past week, we come to ask for three things. First, that you would guard and protect all of our justices and judges. That you would protect and watch over their families as well. And God, that you would graciously protect the integrity of our judicial system. Father, would you allow justice to prevail in this situation? We ask that the law would prevail and that the lives and the dignity of unborn people would be honored by our courts again. Most of all, Father, we are waiting for spiritual renewal. We ask that you would help us to see what we have done and be moved to repentance. God, would you heal and restore and help us? We ask especially that you would work in the church to make us people of compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, 
and patience and above all these things to put on love as we wait for your ultimate justice to be done. I ask you to have mercy on us, on our neighbors that we love, on our nation, in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. Well, let's continue our teaching series this morning called The Stories We Tell. This morning we're going to be in the New Testament letter called Romans. If you want to turn there with me, we'll be on page 940 if you're borrowing a Bible from under the chairs in front of you. Now, I heard a story last week of a family here at Faith Community Church that invited some friends to church and, and after, you know, no, 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 no. They finally said yes. Last week was their very first time in church, maybe in eons. And they grabbed the Bible under the chairs, and it was all the wrong page numbers. So I just, uh, we're on page 940, maybe. Okay? And if you open to 940 and it doesn't say Romans at the top, just nudge your name. By the way, they had a good laugh. Everybody's fine. It's all well. But just apparently there's like five Bibles out there with the wrong page numbers. So whatever. We'll take care. Larry will take care, but I don't know how. <laughs> a couple of, okay, that's funny. Okay, that's my neighbor right there. Okay, she thinks, she thinks I'm funny. A couple of weeks ago in the introduction of this series, I used the phrase biblical theology, and I said, I think I, think I said, we're going to do some biblical theology in this series, and I don't think I ever said anything about what that means. Biblical theology is just a reminder that the The Bible is not a set of independent stories and each one has a different moral lesson to teach us about how to live, but the Bible is telling one story of God's redemption from beginning to end. And in the first eight chapters of Romans, we get one of the uh, best summaries of biblical theology that you're going to find in the Bible. This morning, we're going to look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, page 940, probably, in your Bibles. Well, this is one of the most concise summaries within the summary you're going to find. One scholar has called Romans 3, 21 through 26, the heart of the heart of the heart of the Christian message. Uh, Another scholar put it this way, uh, this is the chief point of the whole Bible. Romans 3, 21 through 26. There are a lot of things wrong with the world. It will not do us much good to try to address those without understanding what is really at the root of the root of the root. You may be here this morning and there are a lot of things in your own life that you're having a hard time sorting through. You need to understand the root of the root of the root. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. This scripture just drills down, down, down to the very foundation of what's wrong with the world and what God has done about it and what that means for us as a result, okay? So here we are, Romans 3, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness 
because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So biblical theology takes in the whole story of the Bible and talks about what is really wrong with the world, what God has done about it, and how the story will end. Well, in what we just read, actually, Paul also alludes to God's problem. You won't say that, you won't hear us say that very often here. But this scripture articulates God's problem. That is the tension that God's own character has put him in and that only he can ultimately resolve. It's there in the second half of verse 25. He says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, that just means his patience, in his patience God had passed over former sins. He's talking about all of history leading up to the cross of Jesus throughout the Old Testament. God rarely ever meets out justice. I know, I hear this a lot. The Old Testament is full of wrath and fury. Boy, the story of the Old Testament is the story of an incredibly patient God who bears with his people for hundreds of years. The, the, it, you're going to hear this more often in the Old Testament, people saying, what are you waiting for? It's getting really bad here, and when is the judge of all the earth going to do right? That's what's actually going on in the Old Testament. And all of this has left God open to the charge that he's unrighteous. He's unjust. God is still accused of this today. And so Paul says in verse 26 that the cross of Jesus was to show God's righteousness and so that he might be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. We tend to begin with humanity and our feelings as the basic principle of the universe. We're the center of everything and we assume that God's highest priority is our happiness. So we're naturally a little befuddled by the problem here. Of course God is going to forgive us, we say. That's his job. We have to, we're told in the Bible that we have to forgive each other. Why can't God just do the same thing? Also, when I have to forgive you, no one gets crucified for that. Well, we're not a perfectly moral, righteous, per, we're not perfectly moral, righteous, and just creatures. Because of who we are, we have to forgive each other because we're not in a position to pass judgment. But God is God. And at the end of the day, if it, if it turns out that he's not just, there is no hope for the universe and there is no meaning in our suffering. John Stott puts it this way. He says, the question isn't why does God find it difficult to forgive? The question is how can God possibly forgive at all? Forgiveness, he says, is for humanity the plainest of duties. To God, it is the profoundest of problems. How can he be both just and justify people like us? And here in the heart of the heart of the heart, Paul shows us how. He shows us what the problem really is, what God has done about it, and we'll say something about why that matters. So what's the problem? Verse 21 begins this way. But now... But now, the righteousness of God 
has been made known apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. Another, all the scriptures tell just this one story. The righteousness of God that's through faith in Jesus for all who believe. So far in this letter, if we've been reading through Romans, Paul has been at pains to show the Christians in Rome who come from all different ethnic and social and spiritual backgrounds, he's been trying to show them that all of humanity, and that includes y'all, Romans, Greeks, Jews, and barbarians, all of us are laboring under the same illusion that we're going to be okay if we would just do a little better, if we would just try a little harder. Elsewhere he calls it righteousness that comes from the law. And the parochial way of saying it is, you'll be fine if you just would do a little better. And Paul's point so far in the letter has been to say, it just doesn't work. For those of you that are religious, you will never be able to keep God's law. No one ever has, and no one ever will. And for irreligious people, if that's you this morning, Paul makes the case in chapter two that even if you don't believe in supernatural things or care about God's law, your conscience speaks clearly enough. You know that you're not who you're supposed to be. And what we really, really want at the bottom of our souls is what he calls righteousness. Now, we don't use that kind of language. We don't talk that way. But so here's what righteousness is. Righteousness is a validating moral performance record. Righteousness is a validating moral performance record. And I think we do understand validation. Validation is kind of all the craze right now. It's all the buzz right now. Validation is, is wanting a sense that we're okay, that we're worth it, and that our existence is justified. Okay, you can actually hire a coach right now to help you self-validate. Okay, find them on Facebook. But righteousness, just so you know, righteousness is stronger than that. It's stronger than validation because it has an objective legal aspect to it. Righteousness is rooted in the law. Not just how we feel about ourselves, but in the solid, moral, unshakable realities of the law. And deep down, that is what your heart wants. So validation is, has become a, a big buzzword in recent years. Like I said, you can go out and find a coach to help you with self-validation. There's also something called manifesting, which I just learned about in the last month. The thing about self-validation and po so positive affirmation stuff, that's where you stand in front of the mirror and you repeat how amazing you are to yourself and things like that. Manifesting takes it further and actually teaches, like this is almost a religious movement, almost teaches that if you will just uh, get, your, get your good vibes in order, you will actually attract good outcomes to your life like a magnet. So uh, people will go to sleep at night saying, you know, while I rest, I can know my desires are coming to me. While I sleep, the universe is moving things in my favor. I am a magnet for all my dreams. These are real things. Um, the thing is, and you may be doing this now, the thing is that deep down, your heart knows that you are making that up. Okay, your boss and your friends definitely know you're making that stuff up. <laughs> but deep down, your heart knows it. 
and it's not doing well. If we validate ourselves, okay, if we, if we you know, just get to say that we're okay and we write our own script and so on, if we're in control of our own lives, why are we so neurotic? Why are, why are we so driven and ob obsessive? Why this need to stand in front of the mirror and say these things over again? Why are we workaholics? Why do we feel the need to spend so much money when we live in the richest place in the world? Why are friendships so hard to find? Why is it so hard to forgive? Why does our past have so much control over what's happening in our present? Because deep, deep down, our hearts know that the stories we're telling ourselves, we made up, and we know it. I've shared this example before, this, this HBO film, The Weight of, of Gold, with Olympic athlete after Olympic athlete coming forward to talk about the unbearable weight of achieving, you know, the, the very highest level of sport only to discover there's nothing there. It's empty. And if it were one or two Olympic athletes, you know, we, we'd say, well, they'd need therapy. You know, they need, you know, they need more counseling or something. But Michael Phelps is saying it's 80% of Olympic athletes slide into near despair because they get to the height of achievement and they find it's not enough for me. There's not enough validation there to hold me afloat. So we think the problem is out there. If we just had this or that, and it, that's not it, what you're after, the Bible says, is righteousness. It's a solid, firm, rooted in the legal, objective facts of the law. So that no matter what is happening out here, you can say, it really is well with my soul. Do you have that? sense of assurance. Paul says that righteousness then has now been revealed through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And he says, for there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've been talking about righteousness in kind of a generic universal way. What Paul's actually talking about is the righteousness of God and he also calls it the glory of God. I think that those two things are synonyms. The righteousness of God is his own perfect moral record. And it's, but it's more than that God just always does what is right all the time. That, that's true, but it's more than that. It's that God always does what is right and he always does it in the right way. If you can imagine that, God not only keeps the law, but he keeps the whole spirit of the law. If you can imagine never having a selfish thought, that's the glory and the wonder of God. Like not just to tell the truth, but to always Love the truth, even when it gets you crucified. That's the glory and the wonder of God. That's the righteousness of God. It is perfect compassion, humility, gentleness, meekness, and so on and so forth. And God wants you to feel that gap. It isn't just what you do. It's why we do all the things that we do. And when you, when you see that, how silly then are all of our attempts at self-improvement and attracting the good vibes of the universe toward us 
when this is what we're actually made for. And Paul goes on to say, we're justified by grace as a gift. A gift. This is an absolutely unheard of spirituality in the history of the world. I have not studied every single religion in the history of the world, so I listen to people who have. Here's what Tim Keller says about it. Every religion in every culture everywhere in the world believes something similar. If you're going to have a connection with God, then you need to have something to offer. If you're gonna go to heaven, if you're going to achieve nirvana, if you're gonna pass into a higher state of consciousness, if you're gonna be free of your neuroses or enjoy health in your relationships, whatever your definition of heaven is, you have to have something to offer. What were the Buddha's last words, do you know? Strive without ceasing. But now, the righteousness of God has been revealed that is freely given by a gift of his grace. In our scripture reading this morning, the words righteousness and justification, just so you know, those are the same Greek word. One is a noun and one is a verb. So to be justified just means to be legally, objectively, actually acquitted from all charges that could be brought against us, free and forever redeemed from the penalty of all sin, past, present, and future. Legally, objectively, actually acquitted from the penalty of all sin, past, present, and future. And it is given freely. Freely. Actually, if we were to go on and read into chapter 4, I think it's chapter 4. I think it's chapter 4. <laughs> I don't know, page, nine, page 941. <laughs> he, he says, God justifies the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a story about justification by faith and what it looks like. Let me read it to you. This is from Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. So if you're sitting now and, and you're thinking, well, what, is, what does that mean? What do, I, what do I have to do? Here's what Jesus says. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. So Pharisees were those incredibly religious righteous moral leaders in the first century. One of them went up to pray, one was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector who's on the other end of the spectrum. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed this way, God I thank you I'm not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. What does it mean, back to Romans, what does it mean in verse 22 to believe? If righteousness and justification are given freely to those who believe, you better know what that means. It means this, to feel that gap between what you've done and who you've become and the glory of God and to say, God, have mercy on me, 
a sinner. I have no other hope. I have no moral performance record. I have no justification of my own. Have mercy on me. And to know, even as you say it, that this is, the, this is God working in you. If you can feel that gap right now, it's because God is teaching it to you. He is showing it to you. If you are able to say, God, have mercy on me, that is the saving grace of God in your life. I tell you, that man went, went to his home justified rather than the other. Have you done that? Do you believe? Is the Spirit of God testifying with your spirit right now that that is you? That when you hear that story, you're saying, that, that is me. Last thing in, in this text, okay? How is all of this not simply a legal fiction? That phrase, a legal fiction, is a charge that's leveled against the doctrine of justification by faith. And it, it makes a lot of sense. Justification by faith is a legal fiction. God cannot simply declare people to be acquitted. And we talked about this last week. Redemption, which is mentioned in, a pa in the passage today, redemption is to purchase or buy back persons by the payment of a price. It's not a legal fiction. We saw this in the story of Ruth. Redemption is a legally binding transaction where one person pays the debt of another. It's sewn into the fabric of the whole biblical story and it has real consequences. We could say redemption is effective, that it actually does what it sets out to do. We are justified freely, Paul says, by the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, verse 24. Now everyone's basically pretty cool with redemption. Tell us more about that. It's the next thing Paul says, though, that we have a really hard time with, that the price of our redemption was the blood of Jesus, which, who Paul calls a propitiation for our sins. Propitiation just means to turn away wrath, to appease or satisfy anger. The wrath of God is his settled opposition to injustice and evil. It is not that God is moody or cranky. God is not moody or cranky. He is wrathful, meaning that he is under control, perfectly just, and he has told us what is going to happen to evil. This is where modern folks say, let's, let's not stress the anger and the wrath of God. Let's stress his love and, and goodness. That just shows that we do not understand how hearts work. You cannot separate wrath and anger from love and goodness. They are inseparable. Some years ago, a woman who was kind of wrestling through this wrote an article about it. She was reflecting on this principle of God's wrath and anger and his love and goodness and she said I, re I remembered a time when I had to watch two of my friends slide into drug, into drug addiction she said I felt fury everything in me wanted to shake them and say can't you see don't you know what you're doing to yourself you become less and less yourself every time I see you don't you see what you're doing to the people around you she wrote anger and love are inseparably bound in experience. And if I, flawed, narcissistic woman that I am, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition out of love, how much more a morally perfect God who made them. She says, anger is not the opposite of love. 
Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. I had a basketball coach once who told us, if I ever stop yelling at you, that's when you know it's over because I've given up. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. So to try to pit love and wrath against each other doesn't work. You can't have one without the other. So for the, meaning, for the universe to have any meaning, God has to be just. There has to be a final judge. I was talking about, about this with a friend this week, and he said, one of the reasons we don't feel the heart of the heart of the heart of the biblical message is we don't understand justice. Over most of our courtrooms, there's a statue of Lady Justice with a blindfold on, holding a pair of scales. And it's a reminder to everyone involved in the justice system that for justice to be just, it has to be meted out in an objective, rational manner, without prejudice and without bias. In other words, it has to be driven by the law regardless of the judge's feelings. We like to imagine Lady Justice peeking out from under her blindfold and saying, oh, well, it's just little Timmy Prince. He's not that bad a guy. We'll, we'll take it easy on him. Everyone imagines that when God looks at us that he must feel the same way, and there is some truth to that. That's why we have the problem in verse 26. But justice is an entirely objective thing. It has to be. And that's why I have to say to you, if you're not trusting Jesus, if you've not abandoned all other hope and your life shows no evidence of love for God, if you're living according to your own wisdom, if there isn't an inner sense that the Spirit of God is the one actually leading you, you should not comfort yourself with the words, God loves me, God loves me, God loves me. There's a lot of truth to that. But without faith, he has told you what is coming. And this angst, okay, this angst that drives us to be obsessive and to overwork and overspend and we can't forgive and to look at ourselves in the mirror and chant these things over and over again, it's because our hearts feel spiritually naked. And they are longing to be clothed in some kind of righteousness. I spent some time this week with a friend who'd just come back from a sentencing hearing. Someone that he loved had been killed by a negligent driver and another friend had been terribly, terribly injured in the accident. And he said, he said, people do not realize how fierce the law is. How fierce justice is. The man being sentenced was a relatively good man. He was a hard worker. He was married. He had two little children at home. He provided for his mother-in-law. He was texting and driving. Let that be a lesson to us all. And he killed someone and terribly injured another person. So my friend was there to support the, the family of the victim. And he said that the judge spent 45 minutes talking about the turmoil within his soul that he wasn't able to sleep because of this. He had watched the dash cam video several times. He could see the defendant sitting there with his wife a few, few rows back. And my friend said, when the judge issued the sentence, it was like someone just sucked all the wind out of the room. 
because he handed down an even stiffer sentence than the prosecution asked for because it was just. And he said, people don't, people don't understand Romans 3 because they have no idea how fierce the law really is. And that for it to be just, it has to do what's right. God cannot peek out from under the blindfold and say, oh, it's little Timmy, little Nathan. We'll let him off. The justice of God is like an avalanche coming toward us, and propitiation means that Jesus has stepped in the way and borne the full weight of that horrible, crushing energy legally, Justly, objectively, Jesus Christ was crucified for sin. And so that same vision of justice is our source of absolute assurance as well. Remember we said in the introduction to this series is that, that if, if we would just look, look, look at what God has done in Jesus, our hearts would be encouraged and we would love each other more and we would have full assurance of faith. Assurance is rooted in the justice of God as well because he's not peeking under the blindfold at you to look at your record. At the end of chapter four, at the end of chapter four, the very last verse Still writing about justification by faith, Paul says, Jesus was delivered up for our sins. Okay, that's the propitiation part. But then he ends by saying, and raised for our justification. Raised for our justification. We usually think of justification, our legal cosmic acquittal, being rooted in the cross, and it is. But here Paul says it's in his resurrection. We can know we're justified because Jesus lives. Why is that? Because if a single, if a single sin remained on any one of his people and had not been covered, he would be dead. He would still be there. But because he lives, everything is paid for fully, freely, and forever. And no one gets to ever say, boo, because you get to say, you get to go, you get to go to the law, and you get to say, Jesus kept the law for me. His righteousness, his perfect moral record is my validation. And justification is not just forgiveness. Okay? Forgiveness is a negative. Forgiveness is you can go. I'm not going to smack you. Justification is come. Come. I want to be with you. I want to have fellowship with you. You and I belong to each other now. You cannot, I just... Since we have been justified by faith, Paul said, the very next verse, chapter five, verse one, since we have been justified by faith, he says, we have peace with God. Peace with God. Fully, forever, and legally free. A moment ago I said, if you're not trusting Christ, if you've not abandoned all other hope like the tax collector, if your life shows no evidence of love for God, if you're living according to your own wisdom, if there's not a sense in your spirit that the spirit of God is the one that's actually leading you, you should not comfort yourself with the words, God loves me, God loves me. But if you are, 
If you look at your life and you are saying with the tax collector, I have no moral record to offer. I have no justification of my own. I am looking to Christ. Without him, I am naked before the bar of God's justice. If you believe that, it's because he called you, he is saving you, he is helping you, and you can know. You can know with absolute assurance that you are validated in the cosmic court of God's law, not because you feel that way, because of the justice of God. I'll invite Kevin and Joe to come up real quick. There, let me close with this. There are two kinds of gods in the cosmos. There are the religious gods. There are the, the gods of the driven secularists that demand and demand and demand and always want more from you, more and greater sacrifice. If you really work hard and do the right things, maybe you'll get a good life and in the end, maybe you get to go to heaven or whatever your religious picture of the afterlife is like. The God of the Bible is far more demanding than all the gods of the world put together. He demands from you absolute, perfect, moral justice. He demands it. The God of the cross does not, he wants you to stop trying harder. He wants you to rest in Jesus. The other, second kind of God, on the other hand, there are made up gods of modern liberalism and secularism that say, God is loving and kind. He's so good he would never hurt a fly. Such gods are worthless. They are, what have they done? What, pi what price have they paid to love you? What has it cost them to have you? Nothing. They are absolutely worthless. The God of the cross is far more loving. He is absolutely holy and just. And he is both just and the one who justifies the wicked. And all of our hope rests in that. Let's pray. The Word of God invites you to examine yourself. The way the Bible says it is, search my heart, O God, and know me. Test my thoughts. I want to invite you right now to let God search your heart. I want you to invite him to test you and know your thoughts and to show you, are you trusting in Christ alone? If you're not, would you today, would you do it right now? God, have mercy on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.